Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 118 for November 15th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site, looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. Time for security now. Leo Laporte here. Steve Gibson is in Irvine, and we are ready to talk about protecting yourself online. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you again. A little disappointed because uh, I had high hopes that we could use this new iChat client that's supposed to use a really high-quality codec. But we're still using Skype because Skype works, and iChat did not. (laughs) I mean, it worked, <laughs> well, but it was awful. It didn't. Yeah, and we really, you know, we've actually spent a lot of time dialing Skype in over over time. And I think, you know, maybe if we had, you know, given iChat some more time. I mean, for example, I don't know anything about it relative to relaying and and passing through yeah. our firewalls and all that. You know, we I, I've got static ports mapped for for Skype and so forth. Yeah, so. we didn't do any port forwarding, so maybe that right. would have helped. But uh, still, you know, AACLD, the codec they're using or purportedly using. It's the same one I use for the radio show. It's a very high-quality codec uh, designed for, LD stands for uh, low delay. It's designed for latent networks. But hey, you know, um, we didn't, like, set any changes or specify the codec. Is it just changed uh, globally? Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe uh, I'll, I'll do some research. Because, we'll, we'll, you know, Amber and I want to use it for not just audio, but also for video. So we'll have to see if we can figure out how to get it working. There's other stuff we might try down the road too. We're always looking for other ways. You know, Skype's been so good though. It's hard to it's hard to beat Skype. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. You're now on the Zoom. On the Zoom. You're now on the, on the what? On the Zoom. You've heard of that, have you? It's a Microsoft product. This is that brown thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, they have now. It's uh, now they also have uh, uh, khaki green, army green. Uh, and uh, well, some other colors. The Zoom. Get a clue. <laughs> well, it's a little better. The new Zooms actually look like uh, only one generation old Nano. So that's not, you know, they're, ah. they're getting close. But yeah, the thing that, and, and I won't be flip about this because I really am excited about it. They are supporting podcasts finally uh, natively. I mean, there's podcasts right in the front menu. The Zoom marketplace now has a podcast page. Makes it easy to subscribe. And if you go, if you are a Zoom, own the new Zoom, or if you've updated your old Zoom, and you go to our Security Now page at twit.tv and check the subscribe links. You can now subscribe via the Zoom Marketplace. You just select Zoom from your list. So I'm just, you know, with why I'm excited about it, it, it with, with a big company like Microsoft behind podcasts, Yahoo's dropped out, Odeo's dropped out, Podnova's dropped out, iPodRx has dropped whoa, out. they have. All of these people are gone. Wow. And so, we, frankly, it's, it's, an, it's an iTunes world. And while I'm thrilled that at least somebody still supports podcasts, it's great to have another player in there and a big one. Now all they have to do is sell some Zunes. Well, that would be good. And, of course, it's it's also good just in general from a standpoint of increasing the potential listener base. I mean, Well, you that's know, exactly my point. I mean, we're, we're frozen now. You know, we, yeah, when, when you first mentioned to me 
what, two and a half years ago, more than that, I guess now, coming up on three years, you said, hey, Steve, how about doing a weekly podcast? I said, a what cast? <laughs> I mean, literally, I'd never heard People the People still before. say a what cast, and that's the problem. <laughs> I don't have an iPod, they say. Yeah. So. You know, we uh, we 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 grew very quickly. It, you're you're the number two podcast on the network right after this week in tech, um, and it's you know obviously still very popular, but it hasn't grown much in the last few months, and I, it concerns me. And I think that that's really that we've just saturated, right, the iTunes listeners. And I think uh, particularly for this and Windows Weekly, which are really more Windows centric, um, th- that help will, it will really help that Microsoft in our in our ball yeah. park. So anyway, thank you, Microsoft. Uh, we also uh, have uh, have a Microsoft update. <laughs> oh boy! A, yes, no, yes, a yes. no, thank you, Microsoft. Uh, I was just, just going to say yes, and being a security <laughs> podcast, you know, being tied in with Microsoft, uh, uh, you know, uh, makes some sense here. Um, yesterday on two, or I'm sorry, uh, day before yesterday on Tuesday was the was was the standard second Tuesday of the month update. And I wanted just to bring to everyone's attention that this one is really important. Um, it's regarded as not even just critical, but highly critical. Oh boy! Um, this is something they've been working on for a couple of months, and it's actually a vulnerability which, refreshingly, does not involve Vista this time. So Vista, this, so Vista is not impacted. Yeah, because you know, I noticed I didn't get the download on my Vista machine. Yes, Vista is not impacted. This is a it's actually a glitch in one of the core XP and Server 2003 DLLs, oh. the Shell 32 DLL. Okay. And it has uh, it has a the essentially the effect is that specially crafted uh URIs are able, you know, things like news colon slash slash NNTP, uh Telenet, uh HTTP and so forth, you know, uh, mm-hmm. those sorts of of references um, that also include a percent sign are not being parsed correctly. Now, it turns out that there are multiple sort of exploit vectors for this problem. The real problem is in this Shell 32 DLL. However, Firefox users, for example, Firefox version 2005 is vulnerable, and Netscape Navigator and IRC clients, even uh, PDF files, uh, Adobe has pushed out immediately an update to their Acrobat Reader um, and Acrobat. Uh, they're now at version 8.1.1 as a consequence because just downloading and opening a specially crafted PDF that contained one of these URIs to take advantage of this could cause a remote code execution on people's machines. Wow! Wow! So, oh, and now, wait, now, so Micro- so it's not merely enough for Microsoft to update its uh, shell DLL. Well, no, that 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 really is the problem. The problem is in Shell 32 DLL. Microsoft has said that it that IE7 also has to be installed on the system because okay. apparently the installation of IE7 interacts with the OS and changes the way URIs are processed by other applications. Yet, yet uh, Adobe still has to do an update itself as well. Well, I think they're doing it preemptively. They're, oh, okay. you know, they have done it. Although I don't think they had to do it if Microsoft had had. Fixed I see. It. So just in case you didn't do the Microsoft update, you would do the Adobe update. Although we're not sure, so you probably should do both. 
Well, and it, it's worth noting that that the, the the original release of this was on Oct- was on October twenty fourth, right? Which I believe is when Adobe fixed this. So they fixed their particular right. vector of this, okay, um, well before Microsoft okay. has, and Microsoft is fixing the root problem. Um, so anyway, for people who are using still using XP, I'm not yet using XP. Um, you know, uh, uh, but XP and Wait a, Wait a minute. Let's 2000. get this straight. You're not you're not yet using XP. What, what are you I, using Windows 2000 still? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I heard I heard you talking on one of the other podcasts. It I think you were talking up. to Paul. I think you were talking to Paul. He said, "Yeah, well, you know, Gibson's still over on yeah. Windows 2000." He says he was. Uh, you could hear him scratching his head. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, okay. okay. Yeah. I'm not. So, I love that. I'm not yet gone to XP. <laughs> but I'm close. I'm, oh, someday I like you will. Yes. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> well, XP's been so heavily patched now. It's Probably the most secure version of Windows, except for now we find another big hole in it. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, this is an important one. As long as XP users run Windows Update or click on the little yellow shield if they don't have their system automatically installing updates, this is one you want to get installed very quickly. Oh, and exploits are in the wild. There are Firefox exploits. There are there are malicious PDFs that are already using this. So this is not just a theoretical problem. This is something you know everyone absolutely wants to to take care of in order to secure their yeah, machines. Yeah. Interesting that uh, uh, Vista is not bit is that just because it has its own shell 32 dll or is it because it's more secure the microsoft hasn't said Uh, my guess is it will have its own shell 32 dll so it probably never had the problem and again we do know that vista is more secure so i uh there have you seen the new mac commercial uh the mac ad (laughs) yeah i love it Uh, vista vista is giving a speech Yep, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't do not go back to XP. Stay with Vista. And Max says, "What's going on?" He says, "Well, people are downgrading to XP because it's it's better than Vista." Oh wow! He said, "Don't worry, it's okay. I already have." And uh, yeah, you know, it's very funny. It's very very funny. <laughs> they did a good job. However, maybe not completely fair. I don't know. I mean, they they're picking no, up do- on the, the the fact that a lot of people are saying they don't like Vista. And we, I don't, and we know a lot of gurus who tried to use Vista and then thought, well, this just isn't worth the hassle, and they went back to XP. So I've been pretty happy with Vista, and I think one thing we have to say is it is more secure, right? It absolutely is. Microsoft is, I mean, really has learned a lot of lessons, and, and to give them credit, they've done, I would argue, they've done everything they possibly could without breaking it any more than they have right i mean you know we talk about securities being 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 a trade-off and there's definitely more they could have done but it would have been at the expense of backward compatibility and that that's just something they they will not do and arguably probably should not do so you know i mean they're they're moving forward i think as well as they can and vista is absolutely a step in the right direction We're going to get to your questions. It's a question and answer session. We've got some really good questions uh, and suggestions and conversation. Our listener feedback sessions really have become uh, among our most popular. Any other uh, addenda? Two things. Um, Someone did an analysis of the numbers being generated by his PayPal VeriSign token the little what i call the football yeah. uh you know the the oval thing that we first talked about the so-called security key that we that paypal was offering for just five dollars and which right. you could also purchase from verisign 
what he discovered, he was just like he was writing down successive numbers, and he noted that the first digit wasn't pseudo-random at all. It was counting. <laughs> really? Zero, one, two, three, and back around. Let me try that. And I just got 415892. I'm still doing that. So it should be five and something? It, the next one you get will begin with a five. Well, and the one after random. that with a six. Well, what it means is... Yep, I mean, five. In, wow. Yep. In, in retrospect, it makes sense because this is a time-based token and it's going to tend to have some clock drift relative to, you know, Galactic Central. So it makes sense that if you didn't use it for a long time, the first digit essentially sort of creates a, a, a plus or minus five effect right. where where the system would be saying, you know, I mean, the dongle, the token, the fob, whatever you're going to call it, is going to be saying, you know, here's 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 number three where i am in the sequence yeah exactly and so that 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 allows a it allows more drift and more lock for their servers the bad news is of course it weakens the the whole system we were saying that there were a million possibilities well there are but you can guess one-tenth of them if you have any sense for where your your token is in its in its 10-cycle phase with the first digit simply counting 0 through 9 and back again. So it really does reduce the effective strength down to, from what we thought was a million down to 100,000. Yeah, but really, and this, this reminds me of the Peabody paradox from last yes, time. Yes, it's enough. Our, yeah, exactly. Our, I mean, <laughs> there, there, of course, there's the theoretical issues, but then there's the practical issues. And Yep. We're, you, you know, you, you still have to guess where you are in the sequence of 10. Yep. I don't I don't know if that would change much as it is. Now, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm going to get my uh, that card you sent me from VeriSign. I wonder if it's doing. No, because the 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 uh, the credit cards are event based rather than time based. Well, that's right. It doesn't generate a new number till you press the button. Exactly, and it's not it's not free running. I don't even think you could fit any kind of a timer crystal in something it's too small. That that is that thin. Yeah. So it really does make sense. It is it's a different algorithm and, a, and it's a different approach on the credit card form factor than on the little timer based footballs. So it might be a, a, you know theoretically anyway more secure. Uh, yeah, I actually think probably would be. Let me just try that. La- I've got a six here. <laughs> yes, I, you know you're gonna, you're gonna be going. A- oh wait a minute, here's a seven. No, oh, here's now it's eight. a nine. It's different. You're right. You're right. That makes sense. It wouldn't work, and and so you don't need to synchronize by time. Well, I mean, they wouldn't. Ha- they didn't have to do it that way. They could have, for example, searched their expected code space for the code that was presented in order in order to sort of synchronize. But it would have taken a little more time over on on the server end. And again, you know, the fact that you're getting a unique code one out of a hundred thousand that's still arguably enough given that it's only intended to be one of multiple factors and intended to prevent you know various sorts of replay attacks right so you know it's it's still good the last thing i want to talk about and this is something actually a link from you when this first surface must have been the first way i found about it but many of our listeners forwarded notices saying would you and leo talk about this and this is this very disturbing breach of faith, essentially, uh, that Hushmail perpetrated. Yeah, and I feel a little responsible because I've been recommending Hushmail since day one. 
And you, and you know, Phil Zimmerman, the uh, the creator of PGP, has worked with Hushmail to make sure their algorithm algorithms are reliable. And if you read carefully, you'll realize that there is still a safe way to use Hushmail. Yes, essentially, what happened was. Uh, and and there's multiple parties involved, as I understand it. There's something involving Canada or something. I'm not really sure if if they were the ones or not. But um, um, uh, essentially, what happened was that that the federal government uh, issued them a subpoena saying we need to get the supposedly secure email for the following people, and it turned. <laughs> and you might turned- say. What? How could they do that? Because Hushmail has said over and over again, even we can't decrypt your mail. Right. It turns out that that is sort of true, <laughs> sort of yeah. true. And and th- I mean, it's a perfect topic for us to discuss here because, you know, I've talked about the, you know, the acronym TNO, you know, trust no one. Right. And it turns out that the original implementation of Hush, Hushmail was extremely secure but a bit of a pain for users to set up and use. That is, it was a client-side encryption using a Java, a Java um, applet that did the encryption. So you, and, you would download the applet and run it on your computer. But yeah, and you had to install Java, the Java runtime on your computer right. that that was you know sort of on one additional step that people didn't want to take. Now I'm not sure why. They couldn't have used JavaScript in order to do this. It would seem to me that they ought to be able to use just JavaScript, in which case you'd be downloading essentially the encryption every time you went to the web page, but that's not what they were doing. So you were using a Java applet that was locally encrypting so that what what the Hushmail servers received was truly opaque and they were unable to decrypt it. Well, what happened was... They weakened the system in order to increase convenience. Oh, yeah. when, have we, when have we heard that before? Yep. So they switched over to a... Uh, just they basic, still use both systems, but they gave you the option of... Oh, good, good point. Yes, yes, yes. They, they, they added the option, which was much more convenient for people, of not needing to use a local Java client, but instead just using an SSL connection where their servers would perform the encryption for you and store it that way and 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 so it would go the problem is as soon as they're doing that as soon as that's over on the server side well they know the password used to encrypt your mail and so the 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 federal government was able to serve them a subpoena saying we want the email of the following companies. Right. And I guess these were, I think they were illegal steroid suppliers or yeah, some steroid investigation. On. Yeah. Exactly. The, the interesting thing is they only know the password briefly as it, as it goes through the system. They aren't logging them. and They claim they're not logging them and saving them. So the subpoena said you need to watch as these guys use the system and record the passwords and record the email so that we can get into it. Yep. So that's that's kind of interesting. It wasn't that they were logging it. But if the Java runs on their side, that's the problem. So you well, can still use Hushmail with the Java running on your side, and you would be still secure as, as I understand it. 
And, and it's really a good lesson. I mean, it is, it is exactly, for example, what we were talking about a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Amazon S3 service and Jungle Disk, right. which we're, we're going to be talking about in the future. I have confirmed that it is possible to set it up, that is Amazon S3 and Jungle Disk, as fully TNO, that is fully trust no one, but it is not the default. Right. So you have to know what you're doing and push it further than it would otherwise. In the default case, Amazon does have the key and could be forced, compelled to respond to a subpoena and turn over all of your files. So again, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, these sort of things are possible, but unfortunately the easy way of using them isn't necessarily secure. And I mean, we're seeing example after example where, uh, you know, where where companies can be compelled to release what information they have. The only the only secure thing to do is not let them have it. Very interesting. Um, and I think scary because people really felt like, oh, hush mail, we should trust them. They probably should have warned people. I think they did, but maybe should have warned them in bigger letters that by doing the letting them do the Java uh was potentially compromising. Yeah, I would I would argue that if they were offering a system with that kind of security, then they should absolutely not have allowed it to change in a way that was yeah. insecure. Yeah. That 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 is people were assuming what they were what hush mail was saying yes. would, would continue to be true when it if they couldn't come up with a way that would prevent them from from being able to respond to 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 for example this sort of subpoena then they should have just you know discontinued it they should not have offered an insecure alternative because yeah. people are going to take it yeah that makes sense hey before we get to our uh, questions and answers i just want to uh, mention some people who have been very good to us and uh, we want to encourage you to find out about. It's called, they're called, The Nerds of Nerds on Sight at www.iwanttobeanerd.com. Nerds on Sight is a guild, kind of. It's not. It's sort of like a franchise, but it's better than that because you get so much from being a Nerds on Sight member. You still have your own business. You're still in business for yourself, you're just not in business by yourself. When you join Nerds on Site, they help you build your business. They help you get clients. They help you keep your skills honed and sharpened. For instance, uh, they do training in the Astaro Security Gateway that we talk a lot about. You can get free certification in Astaro and, and other security gateways. You get access to, they have a site license for Spinrite and other great tools. So you're you're never kind of on your own. You're getting to you're getting to do your job. You're getting to love your job with the help of nerds on site. Now, they do, they're growing fast, and they do want some more nerds. They're in eight countries now. They started in Canada. They're also in the U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, Singapore, pretty much everywhere you can hear this podcast. And they want people who are experts in PCs and Macs, but also, you know, systems like Cisco and Oracle. Fix-it technicians, website designers, from programmers to project managers, from sales trainers to security experts. If you are a nerd and you're in business helping other people, consulting, training, uh, doing on-site IT, you'll want to contact nerds on-site. The University of Nerdology has over 250 competencies. Find out more by registering for a free nerds-only meeting in your area today called 
or actually go to www.iwanttobeanerd.com. I want to be a nerd.com. It really should be I already am a nerd.com, but they've got I want to be a nerd.com. Nerds on site. They're there to help you make your business grow. We thank them so much for helping our business grow. Are you ready, Mr. Gibson? Let's plow in, Leo. Okay, we can do that. Our first question of the day from I Mossum in Redlands, California. He's using perfect paper passwords. He's using them for his work. He says, thank you so much for your recent talk on PPP. He just installed the PAM module by Tom Fors onto his own servers at his workplace. He says, I'm the IT department. I am the entire IT department, and I feel so much better knowing that I carry in my wallet the keys to get into my server that no one else can get in uh, without, like, picking my pocket and some serious nefarious uh, means. He says, thank you both for such a great podcast. As a result, every week or two, I'm implementing some new security measure in my network. And thanks, Steve, for Spinrite, who uses that, too. He says it saved my bacon twice so far. That's nice. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to let people know that uh, we are continuing to have additional open source submissions. Also, um, we're in the process of taking Perfect Paper Passwords to version 3, which is a major major update to it. Um, There was a lot of discussion after last week's podcast about this issue of the the so-called problems with dirty words. That is, you know, there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, I'd like to use this. In a yeah. commercial setting, right. but if this thing spit out a word, a that four letter it, word that, uh, yeah, because I mean, it uses four letter passcodes, right. so it could spit out. I mean, basically every four letter word is possible. Right. And so, and, you know, people were saying, yeah, you know, it just I'm not going to feel comfortable doing that. My boss would fire me if if, you know, if one of these little pass cards spit out particular four letter words. And so it's like, okay, well, that's a reasonable problem. So we we discussed it in the news group. Some people were also just saying, you know, I'd rather have a character set that needed no shift key. Um, somebody else said, I, you know, I like hex, um, and you don't have to worry about four letter words right. with hex because they're all, words, right. they're all they're all boring. Right. Um, <laughs> and and so I, I was sort of thinking about that and thought, so I thought, okay, well, what if we reduce the size of the character set? We had a sixty four character character set and i experimented with reducing it to a a, a funky number that is to say 35 because it turns out that there's nothing says character sets have to be even powers of two normally people think in terms of like four bits would be would be 16 characters for hex um five bits would be 32 characters six bits would be 64 but you could also have strange numbers anyway what we've done is we've extended the whole concept so that so that it's essentially now it's a meta system it's an it's a one time password meta system that allows any user specified character set and any length of token that is any number of characters and we're ah. uh, I've got mine running. A couple other people have theirs running in PHP and C so far. And what this essentially will do is it allows you to to specify, you know, how you would like to use it. If you if you would like a larger alphabet and you're not worried about 
um, ambiguous looking characters because you you trust yourself or your particular users in order to be able to determine the difference between a, a zero and a new um, and an alphabetic O, for example, you could use a larger character set that would give you substantially greater security. Um, if you would rather have there were there was one guy in the in the new in the participating in the news groups who said you know for a one time password system. This is already overkill. I've got my user ID. I've got my my passphrase. I just want to use a three-character token. All right. Well, all right. version three of PPP will allow you to do that. Any length at all. Any length at all. Or you might say, you know, I want to use this thing to generate static passwords, sort of like of, of the kind that I get from, from GRC's perfect passwords page oh, but i'd like them to be printed out so there you could use a longer key that that is not changing all the time so you want it to be longer so right. that it's so that it's stronger so anyway um i'm we're, we're in the process now of revamping all the software i've got to rewrite all the pages again i've done it <laughs> twice so far and if you want to wait for version four and I just want to get it done. So uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but then this thing, this topic will finally be behind us, but we'll end up with something far cooler than we started out with. Good, good. That's really neat. Version three. There's never a final version in software. Uh, well, I think this one, we've just about beat this thing to death. So okay, all right. Yeah, three ought to take care of it. The third time's a charm. Brian uh, Scallon in London, he's worried about the security of SSL or TLS. You guys have probably heard about researchers in Israel who cracked the PRNG. The pseudo-random number generator. In Windows 2000. As a result, Windows SSL appears to be compromised, which is worrying because, of course, online banking and secure transactions rely on it. It suggested the flaw might affect later versions of Windows and even reveal past and future SSL keys. This has shattered... My confidence in online security. Have you any advice that can restore it, Steve? <laughs> well, first of all, he's completely correct. And this is another issue that is right now generating a whole lot of concern and, and fervor within the security community and with a lot of end users like Brian. Um, here's the story. Um, the, the, the guys who implemented the pseudo-random number generator in in Windows, came up with a sort of an ad hoc, very secure seeming solution, but it does have some problems. And there are problems that, that could have been avoided, but were not. The nature of the problem is, well, there are several, <laughs> several natures of the problem, but, but, but primarily, in order to, to determine the the next numbers being generated by Windows pseudo number pseudo random number generator, you need to determine the state of the pseudo random number generator. It turns out that it's up in user space and it's a per process pseudo random number generator. So for example, if you're running IE, that creates an instance of the pseudo random number generator in the Internet Explorer's user space. Now, this is true of all pseudonymous random generators. <laughs> I can well, say PRNG, that if you know where it is, you can, and you know enough about it, you can tell what the next number will be, right? Well, yes, except that you could also constantly be mixing in updates. You, for example, they could you change could, the seed periodically. 
Well, actually constantly. For example, in all Intel-based systems, you're able to read the the number of clock cycles which have occurred ever since the last reset of the chip. So, so for example, that could be mixed in on the fly so that you'd, you'd really you'd – have, you'd have a, a big pool of randomness, but you're doing something that is constantly churning it. Unfortunately, Windows – pool of randomness is static and it is only re-randomized every uh, after it's generated 128k of random output Ooh, that's a lot well it, yes it turns out that based on the rate at which for example ie pulls random numbers to generate its SSL keys. That could be days, months, it, years. Yes, it, it could be from, from like from the time the user powered on their computer until they turn it off. I Easily. mean, so, so, you know, whole session long series. Now, the reason this is not really a big problem is that there's no way somebody in a man-in-the-middle attack, which is really what SSL is designed to prevent gets any benefit from this. That is, it's only by being in the machine which is initiating the the SSL connection that is a Windows machine that would allow you to get the whole state of the of the pseudo random number generator, which would then allow you to predict both it turns out it's both ways. You you can predict keys that had been issued before and keys that will be issued in the future. But you have to be in the machine that is on 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 your end of the SSL connection anyway. So if you're in the machine and you're a malicious Trojan, you can just get the data before it's been encrypted. So 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 anyway, th- this is a bit of a tempest in a teapot. It is the case that Windows 2000 and and apparently later versions of Windows, although these researchers who did this work did not look at XP and Vista, um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Microsoft ends up revving their pseudo-random number generator to be con- continually mixing in um, new data. Um, it's it's interesting. There was a comment on the fifth page of this report from the Israeli guys. They talk about how you could simply use AES in a counter mode to to generate as good a source of randomness as all the hoops these guys jump through. Well, AES in counter mode is what Perfect Paper Passwords happens to be using. Uh huh. Because it is good enough. I mean, it's it's all you need is a really good cipher, and you just stick a counter on one end of it. Although you would obviously need to be doing more in order to get actual actual entropy, because app, Windows applications for the randomness is different than ours is with perfect paper passwords. Because we want the perfect paper passwords to be deterministic and 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 reproducible and so forth. But but the point is. Um, Brian, who's worried about SSL, need not worry because SSL was not ever intended to prevent an attack on either endpoint. It does not do that. It cannot do that. It was intended to prevent an attack from man-in-the-middle attacks to prevent people sniffing your, your traffic and being able to decrypt it. And even... This weakness in Windows pseudo random number generator does not does nothing 
to make it possible for someone um, being a man in the middle to know what that key is or the or the prior keys or the future keys. The only way you can is by looking at basically getting the whole state, exactly as you said, Leo, once you have the state of a, of a, of a, of a static pseudo-random number generator like Windows is using, then you're obviously able to algorithmically march it forward and see what it's going to be doing next, just like Windows does. So, so to, to summarize, this isn't anything to worry about unless somebody has access to your machine. If they do have access to your machine, there are far many more things to worry about than this, and it doesn't compromise SSL's ability to do what it's supposed to do, which is to protect you when you're logging into your bank. Right. It is exactly. It is meant to protect anybody that is uh, SSL and TLS are meant to protect you from anybody listening in on your conversation and they still can't. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. No need to worry, Brian. Lil in Long Island has little Wi-Fi gizmos. Lil says, I've noticed more and more MP3 players and handheld video games are now coming out with the ability to wirelessly sync to your home network. Since they support web security, it's obvious they must store the network web key in flash memory. Since these also connect wirelessly with other units, is it possible to sniff the information on the player and get the web key from my home network? Hmm. Well, I, I wanted to mention a couple things. First of all, um, we all know from listening to these podcasts that web is now really broken. We did a podcast a few months back called Even More Badly Broken WEP or Wi-Fi. Um, essentially, it's so bad now that there are freely available, publicly downloadable WEP cracking tools that can crack WEP in about a minute. So it's almost easier to crack it than it is to enter a complex <laughs> password in into it's your faster. own yeah into your own machine. Um, but, but you know, relative to Lil's specific question, I mean, it brings up a, a problem. I've only seen one router that sol- that solves the problem, and that is that you may have devices like many people have had TiVos, which only support WEP, or you know, the Wii, or or the the Nintendo DS uh, may only support WEP, whereas you're running your network with with good WPA encryption which is what you really need there is a a buffalo tech router which supports both at the same time which is really a wonderful solution because it allows you to maintain the full security of wpa for for like you know the links between your 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 laptop that you use and your router but when friends come over or if you have devices which don't support WPA encryption then you're able to run them in a less secure mode conscious of the fact that it is less secure and that that dialogue could potentially be cracked while at the same time not requiring you to downgrade the security of your entire router to the lowest common denominator and, and I really hope we're going to be seeing more routers that will allow multiple levels of of security encryption at the same time because people, you know, really need to keep their machines running, the, the, their main connections running very securely with WPA. And it's, it's just a shame to force, you know, the, the whole Wi-Fi network down to the weakest security of the device that you want to use. You know... Is there a reason why these devices use WEP? Is it maybe a little bit easier to do WEP 
So the dumber yeah. devices are more likely to use it or? Um, it's just, I think it's just, it was, uh, you know, probably in the pipeline yeah. longer. They're older. Than- Exactly. They're older devices. Um, They haven't been updated. Um, Remember, the WPA was deliberately designed so as to have a secure mode that was not more computationally costly than than WPA because WPA still uses RC2 or means RC4. It just uses it in the right fashion, not not in the wrong way. So it's no harder to implement. Correct. Yeah, we we demonstrated. I think it was that Buffalo router on. uh, on, uh, on the lab it's very cool and other people just use two routers they have a a, a bridged you know a router that's uh, doing the web i mean you have to buy another wireless router but that's another way to do it of course yes absolutely uh adrian jimenez in el paso texas would love to win the lottery with your perfect paper paper password system you say there are 16 million seven hundred seventy thousand seven hundred seventy seven thousand two hundred sixteen possible combinations of four characters for any given passcode on one of the PPP pass cards. While this sounds like a high number, let's put this in perspective, shall we? The odds of winning the Texas State Lottery are 1 in 25 million. Does this mean I have better odds of guessing one of your passcodes than winning the lottery? Yes. (laughs) But then he goes on to say, couldn't you increase the number of characters to five and thereby increasing the odds to one in a billion? I know it's a trade-off, but people win the lottery all the time. Maybe I missed something, or maybe it's just the case of four characters is plenty, and I'm just disheartened by the realization that I'll never be a millionaire. This is a very common statistical fallacy. Yeah. Um, what's happening, of course, with the lottery is that even though the odds are are higher, um, we've got a ton of people all playing at the same time. It would be like simultaneously guessing all of the possible perfect paper passwords. So, you know, if you were able to do so, then, yes, um, it, it is the case that the PPP system from, you know, that one aspect of a multi-factor authentication system is less able to withstand a massive parallel attack than the Texas State Lottery. Although, remember that it's one factor of multiple. So you have to have the user's ID, their their pass their their secret passphrase that does not change and is hopefully strong and this one time passcode that does change every time so it wasn't meant to stand alone however um i also like the fact that he talked about increasing it to five pass to five characters which of course the version 3 of the of our ppp system does seamlessly allow people to do and i expect that some people may like just feel more comfortable w- w- with longer passcodes However, again, it's, you know, the the idea of a one-time password system is that it's changing every time. So, you know, you've got some limited possible number of codes that a, an attacker could could guess with. They're not they're not just guessing that one um they're they're not just guessing that they've also got a username and a passcode or um, a, a passphrase that they need to get correct also, and it changes every time. And after five wrong guesses, you know it's easy for the server to lock out that IP and say, "Look, we don't think you're really an authorized user. Go away." You know, it, it, people though I hear this all the time. Well, somebody's got to win the lottery. Somebody's going to win it. And that doesn't mean you're more likely to win it in, at all. <laughs> well, yeah, and in fact, in fact, the, the the perfect example, which is counterintuitive, is that if you if you toss a coin, 
10 times in the air and it comes down heads. You know, it's like, wow, I got 10 heads in a row. I'm the, 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 the sense is that you're owed some tails right. that somehow for like the world to be in balance, you have to have more tails now, but uh-huh. it's not the case. It's just, it's very unlikely you're going to get 10 heads in a row, but it can happen. But the, but you know, that 11th toss is still 50, 50. Just to put this in perspective, he said the odds of winning the Texas state lottery are one in 25 million. The odds of getting struck by lightning are one in 576,000. You're much more likely to get hit by lightning. The odds of getting killed by lightning are one in 2.3 million. You're 10 times more likely to get killed by lightning than to win the Texas State Lottery. And in fact, the odds of becoming a saint are one in 20 million, even better than your odds of winning the Texas State Lottery. So I think you're you're protected pretty well. Yeah, pretty well. I think so. And you are, by the way, it's... Uh, the odds of winning the California state lottery are one in 13 million. So if you come here and you'll, you'll win, you'll have much more, be- much better chance. James Earl Ford in Apple Valley. Mm, is that Minnesota or Montana? Minnesota, I think. Amen, right? Just learned of another multi-factor. We were talking about multi-factor authentication. I just sat in on a webinar for a product named BioPassword that may be a candidate for one piece of the multi-factor authentication process. The company password, biopassword.com. If it thinks you have, uh, it has some possibilities, you might want to review it on Security Now. I've learned so much from your show. Keep up the great work also. More than once, Spinrite has saved disks for me that I thought were toast. Great product. Thank you, James Earl Ford. Uh, here's what Biopassword says on their site. I mean, I've never seen this. Biopassword offers the only multi-factor authentication software that combines a user's login credential, you know, the login and ID uh, and password, with the behavioral biometric of keystroke dynamics. That is your unique typing rhythm. I've heard this before, that everybody has a unique typing rhythm. Yeah. And they use this to provide a low-cost, accurate security solution that's specific to the user, requires no change in user behavior, monitors and authenticates credentials, and is immediately deployable across the organization. Of course, you don't have to buy a thumb scanner or a iris scanner you just probably run some software that watches them type what have you heard about this kind of stuff what do you think of it well um i thought there was an interesting issue to me it seems sort of flaky um i mean um i guess if you had a large enough sample i mean i'm sure it's the case that if you had a large enough sample of people typing you could differentiate people the good news is with a user id and password this is a, a third factor. So you you already know who the person is claiming to be. It's sort of like we were talking about, for example, when I when I go to um, to check in on our equipment at level three, I, I give them my my card, my um, my RFID card to sniff, and they measure my hand. So my hand is confirmation that nobody else has my card instead of being able to recognize me uniquely. Um, as I understand it, uh, Stanford did a bunch of, of this studies and apparently obtained some patents, which this company purchased the licenses to from Stanford and have, have commercialized this. Um, um, what would really be nice would be if keyboards had had essentially strain gauges in the keys that that is so you could measure not only the timing uh, but the but the speed yeah. and force and pressure right. because you know my sense is that in order for this to be really robust 
you need more data than just somebody doing a hunt and peck on the keyboard. I mean, touch typists are going to have, I would think, much more specific characteristics than, than somebody who's, you know, pecking out uh, their, their username and password, you know, like using one or two fingers on the keyboard. So, eh, I mean, I'm some real some real evidence that this provides enough enough specificity to be something that you, that you can trust reliably and you do have to have something running on the client side that is to say a, a web server running remotely is not able to get the timing of you entering things on your keyboard so you'd have to have some javascript um, at the at the least or an activex control or something that's able to you know be local on the client side in order to watch you typing every single key and, and measure the timing of that. Oh, well, <laughs> that seemed like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, it's, it's, I'd heard that, it, that everybody is unique in that respect, but yeah, I think that's probably the case, but I, I just, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather have something stronger for a third, right. uh, a third token. And I think you're right. If you're not hearing you're, you're only timing, it isn't quite as, of course, if it narrows it down to one in a hundred, that's a pretty good third. To- I mean, third token doesn't have to be perfect. Even if it narrows it down, you know, you, you have one chance of a hundred of being the same, right? No, that, that, and that, and that was my point about saying that, for example, with level three, I have a, I have my pass card, w- which says, okay, this is the one we issued to Steve. And then it measures my hand to see if it's if it believes it's really me. So it's not that my hand uniquely identifies me, my hand simply confirms, confirms, confirms. right, right. Yes, and and so And so I mean, so, I probably there aren't that many different hand measurements. Uh, exactly. I'm sure other, other, yeah. Exactly. I'm sure other people have the same hand right, right. size that I do. Um so it, and it would be it would be very insecure to, to try to use my hand Only. to, you know, just right. open the door right, all right, by itself. Right. Yes. Michael Pexa in High Wickham, UK, wants some free security consulting. Hi, Stephen Leo. A question, if I may. I've caught up with the entire back catalog of security now over the past four months. It's about eight days of listening. Oh, wow. I'm trying to think of the security implications wherever possible. My company is rolling out a web application to a large client. The client wants to make access for his users as easy as possible. I want to make it as secure as possible. We're going to restrict access to the web server to only allow our IP range and the IP address range of the client through. The application itself is SSL encrypted throughout. The client would like to remove passwords to access the app. Since we'll all be sure that a connection comes from the premises, because they look at the IP addresses, how safe is this? I've raised the issue that passwords, however imperfect, will help prevent casual unauthorized access say by a visitor to their HQ or by a cleaner late at night, if someone malicious were to get access to their corporate network, that person would have access to much higher value confidential information than he'd get on our server. So I'm, I'm not overly concerned by this, but I have a gut feeling that I'm missing something obvious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm keen not to leave a back door open to the bad guys. Any advice on this? Well, I thought this was an interesting question because he's, he's, he's asking essentially, I mean, he, he, he knows that this feels risky, but he's wondering if Why? if basically if if IP address range restriction is sufficient. So let me understand this. He's saying we know our IP address. By looking at the incoming IP address, we'll know if somebody is doing this from our network. If they are, we say go ahead. If not, we don't let them in. 
Well, the, yeah, the idea would be that they're, they're going to be offering some sort of web-based services which they want to, to, for which they want restricted access. This is how but intranets have worked for years. Yes, and well, and but but it's going to be going out across over the internet, and it'll be SSL encrypted. The client, who's a, a remote corporation, the client says, "Hey, we've got a block of IP addresses okay. that are not changing. They've been assigned by our ISP. Right. So, and we want to make access to these web services as easy as possible. Meaning, we don't want our users, uh, that is our employees." to be hassled about passwords. So set things up so that so that anyone coming from our range of IPs that are static and assigned by our ISP can have access to the web systems, to, to these web services. Um, well, I could see one problem right off the bat. It's very easy to spoof IP addresses. Well, but no, remember, not for, not for TCP connections. Oh, it's an SSL where, connection. Right, and so SSL runs over um, uh, runs over TCP, so there is no way to spoof it. But but and so I don't really think Michael has missed anything. I think he's asking for you know some some excuse he could use to tell this client that this is not very safe. Right. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, as long as he understands and the client understands that any. Any connection coming from the client's IP range will be authenticated. Then, and there are many ways for that to happen. I mean, you know, Michael mentions the night janitor could have access. So, you know, th- that does raise one possibility, and that would be to say, okay, restrict access to working hours during the weekday. So, from you know, from eight to five, Monday through Friday, if, if the firewall has the uh, has the ability to do time and date based rule sets then that would be one thing he could do which would lock out the night janitor because no one after after working hours would have access in into the web server right. um also it's the case that that you know any sort of proxying any malware that got on any employees machines i mean essentially it 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 seems creepy not to have passwords, but all you're really doing with a password is saying, I'm a human who has, you know, one additional factor of authentication. I know the password. Um, maybe you don't need to identify individual people. Maybe they've got cookies on the client machines to identify which machine it is or, you know, or the machine's IP. But essentially, there really isn't anything that he's missing as long as everyone understands that that IPs cannot be spoofed, but essentially he's statically authenticating any connections coming from that IP range and giving them unrestricted access into his server. He, he you know, what what he's written evidences that he understands that, and so with the convenience comes the risk. So you're saying it is safe? Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with it as long as as long as they understand that it's going to be easy for anyone to access those services from from within right. that client company but okay. i don't see any other uh, any other problem with it see i thought about the spoofing but you say ssl you can't spoof so it's safe it's they absolutely have to be coming from that company yeah they no the one thing you could do also would be to require client side certificates that's easy to ah. establish 
Then and, you could and, limit it to certain machines too, right? And, and you'd have you you'd have client side certificates. You would require client side certificates for access to the web server, and that would also create an audit trail so that anyone's and so that you knew who was you know you know definitively who is using um, those web services. If this if the corporation, for example, had their IPs behind a big NAT then you would be losing that information um, from clients running through NAT because their their local client machine IP would be changed to a public IP when it went across the Internet to go to the web services. But using client-side certificates would give you some additional authentication, and it would allow people, for example, maybe you don't want anybody in the shipping department to have access to this because – this is, you know, not, not, it's nothing to do with their job. You only want the accounting people to have access to this. So you install those yeah. client side certificates I only like on, the, on those accounting machines. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's, you know, one, one simple thing you could do to increase the security, limit the, the access within that block of IPs, um, and also obtain some accountability. And who doesn't like the idea of just having it run without having to enter a password? Yeah. It certainly is convenient. That's neat. Okay, well, I thought it was a terrible idea, but I was wrong. Bill, with nicely trimmed grass in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm sure we'll learn why we say that. (laughs) Steve does these. It's so funny. Writes, I've been an avid listener of Security Now since episode numero uno. I listen to it while mowing my lawn. Uh, See, the explanation becomes clear. Which has made that tedious chore much more enjoyable. I actually look forward to getting the lawn mower out now. My question is regarding passwords. I've been using a long, random password from the GRC website for a year now. GRC.com slash passwords. Of course, I can't remember it, and I don't want to type it in each time, so I saved it in a simple text file in my documents. I worried that perhaps the bad guys might find it and guess what it's for, so when I copy and paste it into the password field, I replace a few of the characters with my normal not-so-random password, which contains letters and numbers. Does this decrease the effectiveness of my totally random password, or have I come up with a useful idea? That's a great idea, Bill. Makes it unique. It absolutely does. The the all of the other debris in the super long password, it just makes it impossible to brute force it. Critically say, okay, um, you know, a, a, an attacker could take that existing password and try to find some small changes to it that would crack it. But it's just it's so unlikely. You know, he talks about how he adds his own password that contains letters and numbers. I mean, there's just there's just no way anyone is going to figure out what this guy has done. So I think it's a it's a great idea of essentially statically having a bunch of random junk to which you add your own password so that by itself it's not useful. But together with something, you know, and something you have, meaning that little file, uh, you've got multi-factor authentication. So moving along, Andrew in Australia had an interesting question about MAC addresses. Is there any way, he says, for a server or website to receive and block a MAC address of the hardware connected to it? He asks this because the user group he contributes to is running into problems with people who are consistently registering accounts using proxy servers after their reg- regular IP address is banned. You see this a lot in chat rooms, too. Yeah. I know that MAC addresses can be changed, although this would stop a large majority of troublemakers who are not overly computer savvy. In other words, they know how to use a proxy server, but not change their MAC address. I've tried by blacklisting known proxies, although this also seems to affect legit AOL users. Can you please help me? 
Well, the problem with using a MAC address is it it never leaves the local LAN. You can't get the information. Exactly. The idea is MAC addresses are used to transport the IP packets from one machine to another within the local area network. But when it crosses a router, what a router does by its nature is it it takes the MAC address wrapper, the, actually the Ethernet wrapper, because it's an Ethernet packet while it moves over the LAN. It takes the Ethernet envelope um, off, leaving an IP packet. It then decides, based on the IP address, which of the various router interfaces that packet should be sent to. It then, the packet moves to that interface, and it gets wrapped with the the ethernet packet that, that for its transit over the next link of the router so essentially the if you look at the internet as being a whole bunch of routers that are linked together the and, and each of those links is a little lan the the packet is constantly being changed it the ethernet wrapper gets taken off it goes to the next interface a new ethernet wrapper gets put on and that allows it to transit the next link of the network. So a, a packet essentially has as many different MAC address and Ethernet wrappers briefly encapsulating it as there are jumps from one machine or one LAN to another as it crosses the Internet. So when the packet finally comes to you, the MAC address of, that is the source MAC address will be of your own router. Your own NAT router will will be the device which most recently sent that packet over your own LAN to you. So, unfortunately, there's no way to know what the original MAC address of the actual sender was. Oh, well. <laughs> Is there anything he can do? Um, I can't think of anything. I mean, he, if they're creating accounts, I mean, you could do things like... Um, like we talked about before, for example, like client certificates, uh -huh. but and and revoke that's a, the. That's complicated, though. Yeah. Well, it's complex, but and it really doesn't solve the problem because bad guys are just as capable of masquerading as a new person, right? And then they misbehave themselves. You revoke their certificate, and they masquerade as another new person. I mean, in, in an in an open environment, it it really is a problem, uh, and it's just part of the you know it's it's the fundamental abuse of the freedom and flexibility of the internet that unfortunately it's, you know, it's a mixed blessing. Yeah. It's bane of anybody's ever run a chat room or a forum or a website of any kind where people log in. Yeah. You should see the amount of uh, comment spam I get on my blog. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of them a, a day. And it's just, you know, just, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You just, you just have to filter it out. Alan Bloomquist in Belmont, California is absolutely Right. Alan says, I was just listening to your discussion of true one-time use versus pseudo-random passwords in the latest security now. People love this PPP thing. It's been incredibly popular, Leo. I yeah. mean, it's just, it, it just captured everyone's imagination, I think. Yeah, it's fun. He says, I do have to disagree with the conclusion you came to at the end. You said that the existence of keystroke loggers will tend to bias attacks towards replaying recently used passwords. But this is certainly not the case for an attacker with perfect knowledge. Unless you're relying on a form of security through obscurity, the attacker is going to know what your policy is regarding password generation and would therefore choose to cross off recently used passwords, in this case, 
as opposed to replaying them. Granted, this would uh, increase their odds of correctly guessing the next password by a negligible amount, but it is an increase nonetheless, not a decrease as intended. You'd have to listen to this episode to understand what he's talking about. Seems to me that in the face of an attacker with the perfect information, not only about the user's actions, but also about the algorithms and policies on the server side as well, you really can't beat a completely pseudo-random password. And as I said at the beginning, he is absolutely right. Right you are, sir. And the reason this is and the reason I put this in here is that we got a phenomenal number of of virtually identical comments. And I wanted to acknowledge everyone who said this in various ways. They're right. The point and, and the point I was making was we don't know who our attacker will be. Right. We don't know that our attacker will have perfect knowledge. It might be that it's a dumb attacker using a keystroke logger who doesn't know any better than to simply repeat what was recently done. In the case, for example, of of making note as 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 Alan suggested of the last, you know, 20 or 30 password pass uh, phrases, passcodes. Well, so you're subtracting those from in the first and the second versions of the PPP system, you're subtracting, you know, 20 or 30 from 16 million. So yes, don't guess those 20 or 30. If you know that the system won't have local repeated passcodes on the flip side, an attacker could be a dumb keystroke logger. (laughs) And all we were trying to do is just prevent you know, guard against the case that it was not an attacker who had any knowledge of the perfect paper password system, but just someone who was saying, hey, I just saw this user ID, this passphrase, and this other strange code typed in. I'm going to try them again. Right. You know, it, it's it's easy not to have those recently used codes present just to give a little additional defense against an attack that we know exists. We don't know that there's a, a, a an attacker with perfect knowledge of everything we've done before that exists, but we do know that keystroke loggers exist. So much, it's like, okay. Much more likely. Exactly. And so so I, I agree with everybody. Just I want to make sure everyone gets it, that I absolutely agree that that pseudo-random is the best, except that given that keystroke loggers do exist, they are relatively common, you know, why not choose a key? And this is what I ended up doing. I did a a bunch of research um, after last week's podcast, and the new code for me has a key finder. You're able to say, give me a good key, a good key being one that tends to have no repeats within a certain window, and it turns out it's easy to find one that doesn't repeat any codes within a thousand. So we get the best of both worlds. We're still using completely random passcodes. It is the case that we're not going to reuse any in a short period. So yes, somebody with perfect knowledge who knew the system would would be able to reduce their you know their their possible guesses from sixteen thousand seven hundred and seven sixteen million seven hundred seventy seven thousand to sixteen million seven hundred seventy six thousand. It's like knock yourself out. <laughs> Fun. Uh, John in Fort Worth, Texas, has a computer that's a little too memorable. He says apparently banks are now required by the FFIEC regulation. That's the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council. They regulate wow, all yeah. this stuff. I looked it up. 
(laughs) I was very impressed. I looked it up. (laughs) To require multi-factor authentication for online banking. My bank has a feature when you first log in that allows it to remember your computer. Uh, I think mine does too. It uses cookies, I believe. Effectively bypassing the second factor of authentication, a challenge question, and only use the first factor, user ID password. How does a bank remember my computer? I thought maybe it was using cookies, but I deleted all my cookies and cleared my browser cache. Oh, well, maybe it isn't cookies. I then tried logging in again, and it still remembers my computer. Surely it's not using an IP address, as IP addresses can change with DNS. Any ideas? Well, I mean, my first thought as I was reading John's question was, hey, you know, obviously it's putting a cookie on your computer. Yeah, I thought that my bank does the same thing. If I log into my bank with a computer I've not used before, not location... So if I'm on the road and I have my laptop, it still knows it's me. Right. It's, it's the computer. Right. Well, the answer is, if if we're to assume that John's right, he deleted all of his cookies and it still remembered his machine, there there is nothing to prevent something that the, that the, that the client-side scripting is doing from saving local information. That is, maybe there's an ActiveX control. Ah. If you run, if you run an ActiveX control, all bets are off. You're running basically a DLL provided dynamically by the the remote server on your machine. So it could be storing footprints and things in the registry, or you know, in squirreled away in some random directory on your machine. So there's, you know, as soon as you're allowing scripting. Again, all bets are off. It could be doing anything it wants to 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 maintain some state over on the client, which if 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 John's right, that's what it sounds like is going on somehow. So even if you delete cookies, it doesn't matter because you're not deleting that particular state. Exactly. Saving exercise. It's been squirreled away somewhere else. But, uh, JavaScript can't do that, can it? Um, as I understand it, DHTML and AJAX allows you, oh, with, really? you know, and, and, and that's just a, a, uh, AJAX is, you know, the AJ stands for asynchronous JavaScript. And as I understand, there is some, some ability to store uh, state over on the client side. Tell you what, I'm going to download a completely different browser, which presumably doesn't share cookies with anything, and try to log into my bank. Because my bank knows this machine. So that would be one way to see if it's a cookie-based thing, right? Yeah, well, no, um, it wouldn't be, would it? Because if the script runs and it saves it somewhere else. Right. But if it Man, is cookies, it, it wouldn't work. But if it is some other system, it will work. Correct. Although, well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, there are just so many variables, Leo. Right. And I mean, anything could be going on over on the client side based on what, what code the bank is running on, on the user's machine. Wow, very interesting. However, if scripting were disabled... Uh, it's difficult to see how that creates an opportunity for any local state to get saved. Right. If, if it's not cookies. Huh. Now I'm now I'm puzzled. I just always assumed it was cookies. Well, before this show's over, I'm, I'm downloading a browser I've never used before. We'll see. Dan Gardner in San Antonio, Texas, wants to keep an eye on his network. He says, is there any low cost or free software that will let me monitor network traffic on my home network? I specifically want to be able to track bandwidth being used by each system connected to my router. We get, I get this a lot on the radio show. People want to watch their roommates and make sure they're not using more than their share, things like that. Well, it takes, it takes a couple things. Um, first of all, the, you know, the, the most popular and, and really spectacular software, which has been developed within the open source community, is now called Wireshark. Oh, yes. Uh, that was uh, Ethereal. 
That was exactly. That was ethereal, which has been around for years and been maturing steadily. It's got a ton of features, and you are able to do things. It's got a statistics package that allows you to to sample a bunch of bandwidth and then run statistics over it to like get a sense for you know in all kinds of different ways. And there are. Uh, various byte count summation things. So I would absolutely point Dan at Wireshark, at the, which is the new name for Ethereal, uh, sort of the form. And I think it's up like at 0.99.6 or something. I just updated my copy actually yesterday. Um, and uh, so it's almost at 1.0, but it's just a spectacular program. The second thing you need to do, though, is you need to recognize that any kind of a switch as opposed to a hub will insulate or isolate your computer from all the others. So, so you do need to play around a little bit with your network topology in order to be able to, to, to sniff across a switch. What that essentially means is that, is that, as we talked about before, early, early on in Security Now episodes, a switch provides isolation among its various spokes essentially so that if there were other people or other machines plugged into a router's switch you would be ethereal or now called wireshark would be able to see your own machine's traffic but it would not be able to see theirs in order to to see all the traffic in the network um, you would either need to be to like plug yourself in on the wan side of the net router which gets tricky for a whole bunch of other reasons but more easily would be to if you had like an older an older standard ethernet switch and a hub then you you'd basically from a wiring standpoint you would run from your regular from your regular border net router you would run that through a hub to a switch where you plug everybody else except you and you plug your computer into the hub now what's happened is essentially because a hub does not provide this isolation, you're able to see all the traffic going between these two switches, between the NAT router's switch and the switch, which has everything else plugged into it, and then you're able to monitor all the traffic on your LAN. And uh, you know, you'll find all kinds of interesting things. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then you could run a proxy server like Squid on a, on a Linux box if you wanted to gate people's bandwidth. You could say only this much bandwidth can be used. There's all sorts of tricks for doing stuff like that. I turned off scripting, by the way, and I still my bank still knew who I was. And did you delete cookies? Uh, I haven't deleted cookies yet because I don't want to do that, so I'm going to use a different browser. <laughs> right. Kokali in Hamilton, Ontario. I'll have a report on that in a moment. Kokali in Hamilton, Ontario is feeling insecure about Gmail. Is Google's Gmail safe? I'm asking this because when I log on to Gmail, I log in over a secure connection. But after logging in, no secure connections maintain. The lock icon is gone from my browser and displaying the... Page info on Firefox shows the connection's not encrypted. Why? Why? Am I missing something or what? Are my emails being sent in the clear text? What about when I use a mail client? Are my emails being sent as clear text? Well, we have, we've addressed this specifically a couple times before, but it does come up from time to time. So I just wanted to take a minute to remind people about how this works with Gmail. First of all, unless you see that you have maintained an SSL 
connection. That is, it says HTTPS colon slash slash while you're looking at your Gmail, while you're opening your notes and so forth, then yes, you are not encrypted. You are not safe. Your email is moving in the clear. What Gmail does is, for example, when you initially connect to to Gmail, you'll use something like HTTP colon slash slash mail dot uh, Google dot com or a number of the various aliases for that URL. The point is that you, if you start with a non-secure URL, Gmail will briefly move you to a secure connection only for logging on and will then revert you to an insecure connection. If, however, you initially connect securely with HTTPS colon slash slash mail.google.com, then you stay secure throughout your entire use of Google Mail. So what you absolutely should do is update your bookmark, your browser tab or whatever it is you've got for, for going to Gmail and just add an S after the HTTP so that you initially make a secure connection, and then Gmail will leave you secure throughout the entire session. And by the way, there's a great, if you're using Firefox, there's a great uh, extension called Customize Google that allows you to set that to be always the case, that it's always HTTPS, so you don't even have to worry about the bookmark. It just always, it always, it always uses HTTPS, which is a, a, one of the very good reasons to use it. All right, I deleted cookies on this new browser, and it doesn't know who I am anymore. Yeah. So I really suspect it is cookies. Yeah, and I've turned off uh, scripting. So, yeah, it, does, it doesn't know who I am. It says, who are yep. you? It, and now it's asking me. It says, unable. Yeah, it's cookies. It's cookies. Yeah. So I, he, he probably didn't delete them all properly or whatever. But uh, at least on my system here, it was cookies. Cool. Well, Steve, we've completed 12 fascinating questions, 12 fascinating answers. I don't know how you do it every time, but uh, thank you. That's been, it's really fascinating. I love the Q&A sections. Well, and our, our listeners love it. And again, in terms of how I do it, it's just being driven by the questions that we get. We've got, you know, lots of smart people who are listening and uh, asking great questions. That's, so it's, yeah. you know. That's why I do talk radio, because you, you know you're talking about what people want to know about works really well we do want to thank our friends at astaro a-s-t-a-r-o the astaro security gateway is the way i secure my system and you could secure yours too if you're a business this is it this is it actually if you're not a business stay tuned i'll tell you how you can use astaro free but for businesses listen to what you get the best of breed in open source and commercial software everything you'd want including email security anti-spam anti-phishing you get dual virus protection for email you get transparent encryption so that everybody in your enterprise is using PGP or SMIME encryption, but they don't know it. I mean, it's just, and, and incoming stuff is decrypted, outgoing stuff is encrypted. It's just really secure. You also get web filtering, content filtering, antivirus for the web, anti-spyware, instant messaging, and peer-to-peer controls. Uh, and of course, you, as you would expect, you get your firewall, your remote access, and VPN, and your intrusion protection, too. I mean, this is everything in one box, about the size of a router. But you don't have to take my word for it. You could try one in your business absolutely free. Get a free demo unit at, from Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, 
The number four, Astaro, that's 877-427-8276. And if you're a home user and you want to try out Astaro on, a, on your own machine, you can download the software free, including all the updates, all the anti-spam, antivirus updates, everything. Put it on any, any old PC lying around. It's a Linux distribution, and you've got your own. You've built your own Astaro Security Gateway. I just told somebody how to do that on the radio show the other day. Uh, for more information, astaro.com slash security now. Astaro.com slash security now. They are great people. Really work hard to, to lock your enterprise down. And they deserve your attention. Try them out. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. We thank them for their support of security now. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's a great place to go if you want to get uh, security now podcasts in the full version, the full quality version, or the 16 kilobit version. He's got transcripts. He's got show notes. He's got links to all his good stuff, including the PPP page, his security uh, passwords at uh, grc.com slash passwords, and tons of free software, including the world-famous Shields Up Firewall Tester. It's all at grc.com. And while you're there, you might want to take a look at Spinrite, which is, without a doubt, as many will tell you, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery solution, GRC. Com. Do you know what we're going to talk about next week yet, Steve? We are, yes. We are finally going to talk about this relationship, which is disturbing, between PayPal and DoubleClick. Oh, you've done some research, eh? Um, it's, as I said, it is very disturbing. Many, many people have said, hey, whatever happened to that? Did it fall through the cracks? Did it fall through the cracks? Well, no, actually, this, you know, the, the perfect paper passwords thing happened, and it, you know, it, continued to burn up uh, more time than I expected. But yes, we're going to talk about you know what it means that you actually get a double-click URL when you try to download wow. the uh, – well, actually from many links over on the PayPal site. We're going to explain really? the consequences wow. of that. I will be listening with great interest since I use PayPal all the time. I do too. Yeah. Hey, Steve, thanks so much. We'll talk again uh, next week. Is it Thanksgiving next week already? Yeah, next week is Thanksgiving week. Oh, my goodness. Are we going to do a show on Thanksgiving? Absolutely, Leo. We're never missing one. (laughs) So after the turkey, (laughs) make sure you tune in. Uh, Security Now Thanksgiving edition. Thanks to everybody. We give you our thanks for listening and for all the donations which keep this show afloat and the support you give us. We really appreciate all your participation, too. I'm Leo Laporte for Steve Gibson. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, Steve, on Security Now. Security Now.